Welcome back, everyone, to Behavioral Science for Brands, a podcast where we bridge the gap between academics and marketing. Every other week, we sit down and really decode the science behind some of America's most successful brands and the campaigns that power them. I'm Michael Aaron Flicker. And I'm Richard Schotter. Today, we're doing trash, graffiti, and America's 43rd president, George W. Bush. Let's get into it. So, Richard, today, we're really talking about one of the most famous American campaigns in four words, don't mess with Texas. And in those four words, the campaign uncovered not just a really great insight about people felt, but almost became more than just an ad campaign. It became a statement about how people wanted to be seen in the world. Big impact here in America, but in Great Britain, None. I mean, I think you'd stop anyone on the street. 99 out of 100 people would never have, have heard of it. So it reflects maybe badly on us and being a bit too parochial. I think we could learn far more from campaigns that happened overseas. And a good reminder for Americans that just because it may be infamous in one continent, yeah. yes, it can mean yes. nothing in another. But you know what the four words are. Don't mess with Texas. What do you think it means? Well, Probably when I first heard it, I would have thought it was some kind of country and western song yeah. or you know, what's not Steven Seagal, who's the big kickboxing guy from Texas. I'm getting wrong. Anyway, I would have thought it's some kind of aggressive macho phrase from you know, some uh, right. country and western star or footballer. Right, right. Yeah. And and so I said, What did I think it meant? And I went to chat GPT. Uh, <clears throat> and I quote from the generative AI tool. Don't mess with Texas has come to represent the independent and tough Texan spirit. It signifies a sense of pride in the state's unique history, culture, and identity. Many interpret it as a friendly warning that Texans are strong, proud, and not to be underestimated. Pretty good by ChatGPT. But where did it all start? As we like to do, let's take a walk down history lane. So the year is 1985. And agency is GSDNM, uh, based out of Austin, Texas. And up to that point, the Texas Department of Transportation had been running what you would all expect as, you know, expected littering, anti-littering ads, which were keep Texas beautiful, maintain our beautiful state. And Tim McClure, the creative director at GSDNM, said, you know, you're really advertising to yourselves. We have to flip the script. Look at who is actually littering in our state. Young men, machismo, they want to, you know, they, they just don't see how these ads speak to them. So we have to reframe it to really talk to them as in their own terms. Don't mess with Texas was born. And it was originally delivered as a public service announcement by Stevie Ray Vaughan, a famous Texas blues guitarist. The slogan was a huge success. It ends up reducing litter on Texas highways by 72%. This campaign has a long run, a 28 TV spots over a 12-year period. Everyone from Lance Armstrong to Leanne Rimes were featured in the spots all 
delivering this message. It became so mainstream that when George W. Bush was accepting his nomination at the 2000 Republican National Convention, even he uses the phrase, don't mess with Texas. So four simple words, Richard. But what's going on here? What's the behavioral science that powers this connection? I think the the insight here is all around ease. What they have recognized is there are two ways to get people to stop littering. You can either get your audience to change their worldview and go from being rebellious and anti-authoritarian to caring about the planet. Very high left. Very high, very hard work. Or what they did was think, well, how can we tap into state pride? How can we reframe littering as being an affront to state pride, something that these interlopers from Oklahoma or Louisiana might do, but certainly not any red bloody Texan? And therefore, by doing that, by reframing the behavior you want as in line with someone's existing beliefs, you make it much, much easier for them to change their behavior. It might seem like that's a trivial difference. But probably the biggest theme of behavioral science is very small changes in the amount of effort involved can have very, very big effects on actual behavior. So one of my favorite studies in the world of ease is a study amongst doctors. So it's a study done in 2018 by David Olshan, Mm -hmm. who's at the Penn Medical Unit. And he worked with the local hospital. And at this local hospital, when doctors were prescribing drugs, they went to their computer and there was a drop-down menu. And it used to be from 2014 to 2017, the branded drugs were at the top. And then you'd have to scroll past all the branded drugs to get to the generic drugs at the bottom. So generic drugs, pharmacologically exactly the same. They're just not... They're not branded. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And what he found was with that setup, 75% of the drugs that were administered or prescribed were generic. Late 2017, they change the ordering process. So now on that drop-down menu, the generics are at the top, the branded are at the bottom. So you're adding two or three seconds of extra effort to the doctor if he wants to prescribe a branded drug. And you see a huge change in behavior. 98% of the drugs now that are prescribed are generic. Now, that is a tiny bit of effort. That is a professional audience who would say that what they prescribe is solely based on the needs of the patient. But even amongst this audience, they are deeply influenced by a couple of seconds of effort. Now, if that level of effort puts people off, now going back to don't mess with Texas, think about the scale of the challenge you're posing. If you Mm. want to get someone to change their entire worldview, much better for advertisers to be a little bit more humble and think more about reframing than trying to change the end audience. Mm. You know, hearing you talk about this, Richard, really just reminds me about how so much of our job is just removing friction from the path that people are going to take and giving them nudges in the direction that can be positive for our commercial purposes. You know, that little bit of friction can sometimes make all the difference in the world, as you were saying, what the order of the drugs listed for the doctors are. And and, and the example I've given, and this is where most experiments sit, is around removing actual friction, physical friction, logistical friction. What's so interesting about the Don't Mess With Texas campaign is they have identified not just logistical friction that needs to be removed, but they've identified the psychological friction. 
And the psychological friction is expecting someone to change their worldview. Mm -hmm. That is a hellishly hard task. People do not want to change their fundamental attitudes and beliefs. So marketers need to have a bit more humility, recognize the scale of the problem, and instead of trying to change the audience, change what their product represents. Reframe, in this case, littering. Reframe it as being consistent with state pride, not littering, rather than something you do to further the environmental cause. And if marketers are less overconfident, I think that would benefit a lot of behavior change interventions. It's interesting because what you and I were talking about before the show got started today is that one thing that marketers and advertisers have that's so unique is the reach of millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of audience with a message. So we have this power of reach and frequency, but this power of reach. So what we put in there is all that matters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you've got almost this paradox of advertising can have massive commercial benefits. You know, big companies making hundreds of millions, billions of pounds based on their advertising. But that doesn't mean advertising has a big effect on On any one person. Exactly. So the way to maximize total benefit to the brand is accepting it is a weak force on an individual basis and trying to make changes as easy as possible. It goes against what I think so many in our industry fancy themselves as, which is almost like magicians. Yeah. One 30-second spot, one, one ad, and we, boom, can make you do something different. When really, it's a matter of how can we make a small change that we can do across a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I've read someone say, advertising is a bizarre industry in which the boosters and the critics both overestimate its impact. (laughs) So we feel that Don't Mess With Texas is a really great example of reframing the situation. Before the show, Richard and I were talking about where else was there a time where a big action, a big challenge really used a frame to change it. And we were talking about electric cars. Now for decades, electric cars and electric car manufacturers said to the world, uh, you shouldn't use fossil fuels. There was shaming. There was this sense that you had to use electric cars to save the world with very little adoption. Even if you looked at the Toyota Prius, it looked different than a normal car. You really was an outlier. What Tesla so brilliantly saw in early adopters was that driving an electric car was more a status symbol than it was about doing good for the environment. So if they developed a luxury car, they launched with the Model S, it was really a status symbol that happened to be electric. And that was what really helped Tesla take off. So we see this power of reframing and meeting people where they are has been used brilliantly in America. Don't mess with Texas, anti-littering, Tesla with electric cars. Richard, what about in the UK? Whereas anti-littering campaigns gone well, have gone badly? Yeah, so there's there's nothing of the scale of don't mess with Texas. There's nothing that has reached those kind of cultural heights. But there are quite a few experiments that have been used in behavioural science that have improved local campaigns. So one of my favourites, and this could be used much more broadly, 
He's a wonderful study from the University of Newcastle in 2006, and it was run by Melissa Bateson. So in the university staff room, they have a honesty box for using the milk. So if you're a academic, you have a cup of tea, you pour your milk in, you're meant to put 10 pence into this honesty box okay. to pay for the milk. Okay. And they run an experiment over 10 weeks. And on some weeks, they put a little picture above the honesty box of flowers. Then on alternate weeks, they put a little picture above the honesty box of eyes. And they monitor the amount of money they raise per litre of milk used. And they find that there is a rough doubling of money collected when the eyes are active. A little spooky. Yeah, a little spooky. <laughs> this isn't magic, though. There's a very rational explanation. So their argument is their eyes essentially, these pictures of eyes remind us that we might be being watched. And if we think we're being watched, we are much more likely to behave in a socially responsible way. So when the eyes are present, people think, how does society expect me to behave? And they're more likely to adhere to those, those, those norms. Now, that insight, and it became known as the watching eyes effect, and it's been shown in multiple other settings, that insight in the UK is quite regularly used with anti-litter campaigns. You'll often get a message from the council, you'll get a message from the local government saying, don't litter. And above the text, there will often be a pair of, of eyes. There'll be a picture of, of someone's eyes sitting above those above that text. So that's something that I think is a small scale of example of um, behavioural science being applied to anti-religion campaigns. We have to find some examples of this and put in the show yeah, notes. No, I can't think of any advertisement yeah. in America that uses eyes. Ah, so, so the government do it regularly. So there's anti-littering ads. There'll be messages from the government about paying a tax. Yeah. When there are rows of uh, cycles being parked, there'll often be pictures of eyes Amazing. above them. It's quite a common government tactic now to remind people of... The socially responsible yeah, thing to yeah, do. yeah. Fascinating. Okay. So for my American sensibilities, a little edgy to have eyes watching you, a little Orwellian, if you will, but sometimes there's some negative effects. Yes. So there are, are quite a few examples of campaigns that have performed poorly because I think they misuse ideas from behavioral science. So there is a danger that if your messaging is overly authoritarian, if it's too directional, you uh, encourage a problem called reactance. Mm. If you tell people what to do, they sometimes push back against that. Yeah, they don't like that. So there's a, a 1978 study from the University of Texas, and the psychologist was called Penny Backer, and he gets signs and he puts them up in male toilets. And sometimes the signs say, please don't graffiti. And other times they sign say, you know, do not graffiti, underlining, bolding, exclamation marks. Mm. And he rotates these signs on a, a four-hour basis. And he finds that when the overall authoritarian sign runs, there is about twice as much graffiti <laughs> as when the more polite sign uh, is active. So his argument is one of the big drives of human behavior is a desire to retain agency, a, a desire to retain control. Yes. And if we feel that's been taken away from us, especially if it comes from that removal of authority comes from someone who's in a position of power, then reactance occurs, we push back, and we actually act in the way that the communicator doesn't want us to behave. 
that you see in a lot of littering campaigns. You know, don't be a tosser was one message that used to run a lot of parks. So be careful. If you want someone to change their behaviour, don't communicate in an overly authoritarian manner because often it will backfire. Fascinating. Richard, like we always like to do, let's sum it up for our listeners. What are the key takeaways from this episode? There are three big things from this episode. The most important probably is the importance of making change easy. The great thing about Don't Mess With Texas is they interpreted that problem laterally. They didn't just think about logistical friction. They thought about psychological friction. So reframe your product to be in line with your audience beliefs rather than try and change your audience beliefs. Mm -hmm. That's the first big thing. The second study we talked about was the Melissa Bateson study into watching eyes. The key principle there is people's ethics are not fixed. If you want people to act honestly, remind them that they might be being watched by the presence of eyes, you know, even a subtle reminder will work very well. And if you do that, they're more likely to behave in the way that society expects. And then the final study was that principle of reactance. And the argument here is be careful about not being too authoritarian in your demands, that people want to retain a sense of control and agency in their lives. Mm -hmm. And if they feel that's being denied them, they will often push back against communications and your well-meaning attempts to intervene will often backfire. Richard, we're talking Texas and everyone thinks of barbecue when you're in Texas. In America, barbecuing is an art form from wet rubs to dry rubs, from sweet to spicy. Your favorite type of barbecue? I must admit, I'm going to have to uh, reveal my ignorance here. I didn't know there were types of barbecue. <laughs> I just thought it was an alternative to uh, boiling or frying. This, this is the new, new news. This is only further propping up the stereotype of UK eaters and cooking. But not to say, next time you're in America, we'll have you over for all the different types of barbecue the country has to offer. A proud, a proud history. Thanks, everyone, so much for tuning in to Behavioral Science for Brands. I'm Michael Aaron Flicker. And I'm Richard Schotter. If you enjoyed our show today, please give a good rating or review. And if you're implementing behavioral science at your company or within your brand, do let us know. Email us at hello at theconsumerbehaviorlab.com. Behavioral Science for Brands is brought to you by Function Growth, Ad Age's 2023 Newcomer Agency of the Year. Function Growth uses behavioral science to supercharge growth for direct-to-consumer brands. They operate across a wide spectrum of services as a one-stop shop and integrated strategic partner for brands with high growth potential. Unlike typical agencies, Function Growth leverages shared risk and reward compensation models, meaning they only make money when your brand grows. Reach out to them if you'd like to unlock the power of behavioral science to accelerate growth for your brand.